Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Louisiana is home to some of the most intriguing lore of any state in America. Home to New Orleans, which is well known for its very unique practices involving voodoo and spirits, it's no surprise that there are countless ghouls and goblins said to roam the bayous and swampland around it. Lore rich as Louisiana is as a whole, however, there's one creature who predates even the state's frightful traditions of voodoo dolls and witchcraft. In some tales, this beast even predates the state itself. The full moon hangs high over the Louisiana swampland. The bright lights of the stars flicker in the murky licks of the waves near the towering ominous cypress trees. Frogs croak their songs in the distance, and mosquitoes buzz as they fly around looking for their next meal. There's a howl in the near distance. It sounds like a wolf, but something's a little off. Standing on two legs on top of a fallen, moss-covered tree is a large, snarling beast. It throws its head back, letting out a blood-curdling howl to the moon. That's no werewolf, though. That's what we in Louisiana call the Rougarou. Shah. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I hope that you're doing well wherever you are. I know that October and Halloween is an important time for a lot of people, and especially in the year of 2020, I'm sure that there's lots of you who are really looking forward to having something to focus on besides all the doom and gloom. So on that note, folks, October has always been an important month to me and my family. And so we're going to have a little bit of a format change for the program this month. There'll be no UFO topics this month at all. There will be in the News of the Damned. I'm still going to continue to cover those things. But I'm going to bring you four Halloween-related topics that I think you're really going to enjoy. And, you know, it'll be a little bit of a nice mix-up, something different for October. And then once we get into November, we'll get back into the UFOs as well. So I just wanted to give you a quick rundown, as I promised, of the four programs that we're going to have for the four weeks. So tonight's program is obviously about the Rougarou. The next program will be about the Highgate Vampire. Then the next program after that will be about the Moving Coffins of Barbados. And the last Halloween-themed one will be about Myths and Legends of Illinois. And on that episode, I'm going to have for you some first-person accounts of ghost stories as well, folks. So hopefully you like all those topics and it's something you'll be looking forward to. Aside from that, I do just have one other note that I wanted to say really quickly on the air. Uh, Eddie, uh, for Cammie, I just wanted to tell her happy birthday, and I hope that she really enjoys herself. And aside from that, folks, thank you everyone, as always, for listening. It really means the world to me. I'm not going to give you rundowns each week for everyone, uh, you know, in each area, but I just wanted to say to everyone, really, thank you from the bottom of my heart, as always. Uh, I really appreciate the support, and it means the world to me. Now, on that note, I just wanted to tell you folks, don't forget, if there's a topic that you'd like me to cover, if there's something you'd like me to look into, send a note, you know, drop me a drop me a note. You can send me an email at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. You can find me on theparanormalsun.com. That's the website. You can find us on Instagram or in the Facebook group, and it's all under the Paranormal Sun. So if there is a topic that you'd like me to move to the front burner, because the reality is, folks, I've got hundreds and hundreds of backlog shows to do, topics that I've always found interesting that I want to cover over for you. But if there's something that you find really pertinent 
or even if it's a news article in your area, something that you'd like me to read on the air or look into, or, you know, one of your personal stories, something that you've gone through, if it's a UFO encounter or anything to do with some of these topics you hear me talking about, by all means, you know, drop a note. If you'd like to support the show, one of the best ways you can support the show is, again, you know, you can go follow us on Instagram, uh, follow us on Facebook, go wherever you listen to your podcasts and, and give the program a review. Hopefully it's a good one. You know, I do my best to uh, put out stuff that I hope you like. Uh, you know, this program, as I say, you know, I, I'm not Joe Rogan. I know that. But as long as I'm doing something that, you, that you're enjoying, then that, that means the world to me. And I feel like I'm a success. If you'd like to go another step further and help the program out a bit more, you can always go and uh, add the Paranormal Sun on Patreon. You know, you can support through there. Or you can just go to the website and drop a few coins in the uh, PayPal account. Anything like that will go to support the program. You know, things like paper, ink, uh, paying for the internet, the power, research time, all of that kind of stuff, folks. And uh, for those of you who have in the past, thank you so much really means the world to me. So as always, folks, we will continue to have the news of the damned through these Halloween shows. And for those of you who are new to the program and haven't heard about the news of the damned or don't know what it's about, Charles Fort was one of the founding fathers of the kind of field of paranormal. He's one of the people who was the first to really catalog and categorize a lot of these stories that you'll hear about, these old stories, be they UFOs, be they sea serpents, be they just mysteries, he categorized them and kept them in card files and then published them as books back in the early 1900s. And anything that was ignored or you know not dealt with by science, anything that was ignored or excluded, Charles Fort called Damned Data, thus the name of the segment, which is the News of the Damned. And tonight, folks, I've got some really good, you know, a good mix, and I've tried to mix it up so that you've got a little bit of a Halloween-themed News of the Damned, you know, for the month of October. And I do hope that you enjoy the articles. And as always, there'll be links in the show notes if you would like to go over and read if there's anything that you're wondering about or see the photos, and I always try and describe that on the air. So as I say, you can always follow the links in the show notes. So now, folks, I'm going to get into the news of the dam for today, and I hope that these are all articles that have got that good Halloween vibe for you, something different, something interesting. So the first one here is from the HuffPost, and this one is titled, Peruvian Shamans Use Ancestral Ritual to Predict Winner of U.S. Elections. It says, the shamans rub medicinal plants, fruits, and even a live snake on the photos of Biden and Trump. And this is uh, written by the Reuters staff, it says. So Lima, with incense smoke, flowers, and photos of Donald Trump and Democratic rival Joe Biden, Peruvian shamans performed an ancestral ritual on Wednesday for the U.S. elections. But there was little agreement about who would win the November 3rd ballot. Chanting and blowing a traditional Andean shell instrument, the shamans dressed in multi-cover garb invoked the Pachamama, or Mother Earth, for the U.S. vote to take place in peace without attacks or any witchcraft between the rivals. Shaman teacher Anna Maria Simeon, during the ritual held in a low-lit room of an old building in downtown Lima, said she was in favor of Biden. That is why we are cleansing him. We have seen that they are attacking him with witchcraft and with a black doll. With a voodoo doll, they are shadowing to remove him, said the shaman with necklaces wrapped around her neck. 
During the ritual, the shamans, dressed in Andean ponchos and cloaks, rub medicinal plants, fruits, and even a live snake on photos of Democratic candidate Biden and Republican Trump. According to a Reuters IPOS poll, poll on Wednesday, Biden leads Trump nationally among likely U.S. voters by 9%, with 50% of likely voters planning to cast ballots for Biden, while 41 were doing the same for Trump. That was in the middle of September, folks. Good energies to Mr. Donald Trump, said the master shaman Pablo Torres, carrying the snake on one of his shoulders after squirting a strange liquid from his mouth onto the image of Trump. Why? Because he is deserving. He needs good energies, good vibes from his followers, he said. We are supporters of the gentleman. He will win. He is a winner. And again, it just says, reporting by Reuters TV, writing by Marco Aquino, editing by Adam Jor uh, Jordan and Lisa Schumacher. And again, folks, I'll have a link of this in the show notes. Look, you know, something different, something a little bit more lighthearted with the uh, with the Halloween theme, but definitely something that, you know, a lot of people kind of poo-poo shamanism and things like this and, you know, quote-unquote witch doctors. But I'll tell you, folks, there are lots of things that people like this shouldn't know, and yet they do manage to divine. So, you know, yeah, as with anything, you know, you need to keep in you need to keep a bit of a skeptical mind looking at things like this, but at the same time, I do find it quite interesting with a lot of these things in the past, how right they've been. And an interesting side note, folks, for those of you who don't know, I don't know what it's like in the U.S. now, but uh, when I left, uh, you couldn't even really sports bet online. And, you know, I don't know now if you can bet on the election and bet on politics, but in Australia, you can bet on the politics well, anyway, I found it quite interesting that in the 2016 election, during that time in Australia in the sports books, Donald Trump was the favorite, even though Hillary Clinton was well ahead in the polls. And I did find that quite interesting, you know, because, you know, some of these terms that you've heard, like the house, the house always wins when it comes to gambling and also follow the money. But I did find it quite interesting that that was the case. I haven't looked at this election yet to see who's ahead. Uh, there is a gentleman out there named John Hogue. I don't want to get too far off on the side, but just about uh, the elections. He's got every election, I think, since Nixon, correct. And uh, he's also an expert on Nostradamus. So I do find it quite interesting that there are some people out there that are really accurate with these presidential predictions. And again, it just makes you wonder, you know, are they tapping into the Akashic record or kind of the, the hive mind is another term. But anyway, yeah, that's, uh, that's the article about the shaman. And uh, there's a link in the show notes, of course. And now I'm going to move on to the next article here. And this one is a bit of a following, uh, you know, following an ongoing story that I've covered many times. And that's about that 2004 UFO sighting that had to do with, you know, the U.S. aircraft carrier. And so there's a bit of a, you know, article here. It's written in a bit of a provocative term, as, as is often the case, because they're trying to get you to read the article. Now, this is from NewsHub, which is a New Zealand site. So that's newshub.co.nz. And this one is titled, Infamous 2004 UFO Committed, quote, Act of War, unquote, says pilot who saw it. And this was written by Dan Satherly. It says, one of the pilots who encountered, who, whose encounter with a mysterious and still unexplained object off the coast of the U.S. in 2004 says whatever it was, it committed an act of war. In November 2004, anomalies had been detected on radar off the coast of California. Commander David Fravor, then a U.S. Navy pilot, was dispatched to investigate. 
later describing what he saw as like nothing I've ever seen. A 14 meter long tic-tac shaped object able to turn on a dime and make itself invisible to radar. So, uh, you know, to Nicola Noel over at the uh, Quite Unusual Pod, you know, there's there's your tic-tac reference for this show. He was following he, he was followed by other pilots who managed to catch it on video. Clips were leaked in 2017 by a UFO research group founded by punk singer. I don't know if he's a punk singer. Tom DeLong of Blink-182 and formally declassified in 2020 by the Pentagon. Fravor recently appeared on a podcast hosted by MIT research scientist Lex Fridman, who called him one of the most credible witnesses in the history of UFO research. He said the encounter lasted several minutes and was reacting to what they were doing. This is not like we saw it and it was gone, or I saw lights in the sky and it's gone. We watched this thing on a crystal clear day with four trained observers. Fravor said he tried to get close to it, but once he got within a few hundred meters, it accelerated so quickly, it was gone in just a half a second. I remember telling the guy in my back seat, dude, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty wired out. Sorry, weirded out. Once he landed, Fravor mentioned the object to another pilot, Chad Underwood, who was about to take off. Underwood found the UFO, aimed his radar at it, and got jammed. He's, he's telling the radar, stare down the line of sight. Whatever is there, I want you to grab it and build a trace file on it, which will tell you where it is, how fast it is, and the direction that it's going, said Fravor. The radar is smart enough that when the signal comes back, if it's been messed with, it will tell you. It will give you indications that it's being jammed. It's being jammed into about every mode you can see. You can tell it's being jammed. When you actively jam another platform, that's technically an act of war. He said aside from that, the object reacted exactly as he would have if he was piloting it, except it could do things no known human technology can. So in other words, he's saying this wasn't a drone, this was a piloted craft. I don't like to get into little green men, but I don't think we've developed it. I think you can hide things for a while. This is a giant leap in technology, and it is. The origin of the object remains unknown. Some U.S. senators have suggested it could be Russian or Chinese technology. If that's the case, folks, um, yeah, the U.S. is in big trouble and any other country that doesn't have this technology. We have things flying over our military bases and places where we are conducting military exercises and we don't know what it is and it isn't ours. So that's a legitimate question to ask, said Senator Marco Rubio. Fully agree. A member of the committee. Frankly, it's something from outside this planet that might actually be better than the fact that we've seen some sort of technology leap on behalf of the Chinese or the Russians or some other adversary. An astrophysicist who used to work for the Pentagon's secret UFO division claimed in July it was the U.S. military itself and that had off-world vehicles not made on this earth. Well, look here, folks. Um, the bottom line to me is that uh, I don't think... If it is another country who's got access to this technology, I don't think that they produced it themselves. The U.S. military, as we all know, is on the cutting edge of you know military equipment um, and has been for quite a while. And if it was slightly better than what we've got, it would be different. But this is pretty much leaps and bounds ahead of us. Now, is it possible that another country's got their hands on a downed UFO or something? Of course it is. I mean, I don't know. There's lots of things that could be going on. But I just don't think that it's conventional aircraft that was built by China or Russia without having some kind of outside influence, let's say. And again, folks, I just find this quite interesting because this gentleman, um, you know, 
He's saying that it's a trained observer, and yet when you hear skeptics half the time, they go, oh, military pilots and police, oh, they're no better, you know, and, and pilots in general, they're no better witnesses than a layman. In fact, it's worse because, you know, they they uh, they tend to think think too far into these things, what these craft are and, and what they're doing when it's just things like swamp gas and meteors. Yeah, come on, go on and pull the other one. Again, I've said it on the show many times. I think that 95% of UFOs, you know, have got a explanation that is of a nature that is earthly. Now, when I say earthly, you know, it could be a meteor, it could be earth lights, it could be a lot of different things. But what I mean is it's, there is an explanation out there. And the other 5%, I feel, you know, around five, kind of three to 5%, I feel there's something else to it. Now, could that something else be, you know, way advanced technology? Of course it could. You know, it's got to be someone or something's, you know, product. I mean, yeah, there could be things like hallucinations and uh, hysteria and that. But again, I just don't think it can be possible in all these cases. And again, in things like this. Now, this is part of the reason why I covered over the Kalora's case for you. A lot of people, like I say, you know, they think that this is a benevolent space brother type thing. And look, it might be. There might be multiple groups. Who knows? But all I'm saying is for people who don't think that there's a problem with these craft flying around, you know, wherever they like, whenever they like, military space, you know, civilian space, kind of doing whatever they like. Um, yeah, it, there's definitely something to it. And there's years and years of cases, and there'll be many that I cover on this show, that show that these things are not only peaceful. You know, I'd say the vast majority of cases are not that that way, but there's definitely something more to this than you know, benevolent space brothers who, you know, don't do anything uh, untoward towards us. There are definitely cases out there where there have been, you know, interactions. And this isn't even getting into the abduction phenomenon, folks. All right. So, uh, yeah, again, I'll have a link in the show notes for you if you'd like to read a bit more on that. And again, this is something that's kind of ongoing. This uh, pops up every, you know, few weeks. There's a new article, it seems, uh, on on this particular on these cases from the Pentagon from the 2004 and 2008 sightings. Okay, folks, I've got our next article here for you. And this one is from the Southside Times, which is from a small paper in Indiana. And this one is the website's ss-times.com. And again, like I say, there's a link in the show notes. And this one is titled, When Pets Are Silent Witnesses to the Paranormal. And this one was written by Rick Hinton. And it says, do you recall these occasions, Sweetie the Pooch or Studs the Cat, suddenly turning their attention very intensely into a corner of the room, staring with a fixed glaze? Maybe there's a low growl from Sweetie, or hair standing up on the back of Studs as his tail twitches across the floor. A dark, empty barn produces nervous sidestepping from the horses, with their tails twitching like fans. You are oblivious and see nothing, rationalizing it's just some kind of animal thing. It could be. Or maybe you have just experienced something of a paranormal nature and didn't make the connection. Animals have a heightened sense of awareness. It is thought that we humans once did also, but generally grow out of it after our childhood. Animals, however, don't grow out of it. They see and hear things that you and I never will. I don't know how it works. It just does. Is it a type of sixth sense that places a different spin on what we consider normalcy? Or are there just things that behind the veil only privy to them? It makes a sort of sense. There are paranormal groups that use dogs in their investigations. I haven't heard of any groups using cats, which I understand. 
Cats could care less about helping you and have no desire to expand beyond their daily routine of food and long naps. Dogs, however, will most often let you know if something fishy is going on. If it's something of a supernatural nature, they generally go on high alert or shrink back trembling and becoming useless. They can't vocalize what is happening, but are sure entertaining to watch. I tried a dog once. He was on continual lookout for something to eat and begging snacks, pooped on the floor twice, and had a strong desire for someone to rub his stomach continuously. He just wasn't into it. I haven't used one since. I did think for a while that I had a paranormal cat. Years ago, Casey, the cat of wonder, would plant herself in, in the front bedroom of our mobile home, my newborn son's room, and stare transfixed at a painting of Jesus kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane. Frankly, to see her sitting in a dark and, and staring at this picture for hours creeped me out, yet I was determined to figure it out. Had Casey become a Christian? What exactly was going on in, in a cat's mind? I sat with her in the dark one night and possibly came up with a solution. Passing traffic headlights from the street outside played through the bedroom window shades, moving briefly across the glass of the picture. Debunked. I relocated the picture and the mystery was solved. It didn't, however, explain the voices coming from this room over the baby monitor. Casey was of no help in this area. Presently, I can only imagine what transpires in our compound on Southport Road with Norm the dog and Jerry the cat. It seems to be a house of secrets. Paranormal quirks are almost a daily occurrence, and both animals are here all day alone. At night, they huddle with the humans and stare into a world we cannot see. They react to something just beyond the shadows. If only they could speak, the stories they could tell. Well, look, folks, um, that is interesting, and it is something that I personally agree with. I have seen animals act very weird at times where you may say, hmm, you know, why are you acting so strange? So William, around the house here, he will act strange. He'll look towards the other room or he'll look in corners of the room. Now, William's eyesight is not the best. But what I found out about dogs that I didn't know until, you know, a little while ago was that they see better in low light and they see better in the dark because of their, the way that their eyes pick up color and light. And there are times that William will be barking outside. Our street is quite dark and he'll be focusing on the street and barking quite loud. And then I'll see somebody walk by in kind of dark clothes that I, you know, it, it will take me a good five or 10 seconds to see him. And also bear in mind that William is quite old, you know, so he's the equivalent of being like 60, 60 to 70 in human years. And yet his eyes are that keen that he can pick up these people out there. So me personally, I've been around enough pets and I've been in instances where I'll have a dog react to something and I don't know what it is. And then, you know, maybe a few seconds later, I'll get like that goosebump feeling where the hair is standing up on the back of my neck. And I don't think it's got anything to do with the dog, you know, like from the bark that's causing it. So nonetheless, it's quite interesting. And it is food for thought. And again, I personally also believe that at a younger age, humans are more susceptible to seeing things that, you know, aren't in the physical material realm. I think at a younger age and when you're near death, because I've heard many stories from people who've worked in med medicine and in nursing homes, and there's oftentimes stories about people who are very close to death, they know they're dying, and then they will say something like, oh, that's lovely that my sister came to see me, and then the family will come around and the nursing home person might mention to them, oh, they said their sister came to see, see her, but she didn't have any visitors, and they'll say, you know, well, that's impossible, her sister passed away 30 years ago. 
And I've had secondhand accounts of many times of this, where people who are on their deathbed have basically said someone who's already passed on is coming there to collect them. So again, it is what it is. And as with anything, folks, you keep your mind open. These decisions are up to you to decide what you feel. But nonetheless, I do find them quite interesting. Now on to the last article for the evening, and I saved this one for last because this is a very interesting one, and yeah, I think it's it's uh, something that you're going to find some value in. Now this one is from the Binghamton homepage, which uh, I'm not sure where that is, but uh, it's in the U.S., and it says, Bundy Museum, an empirical paranormal to participate in world's largest ghost hunt. And this one says, Binghamton, New York. So that's where it is, Binghamton, New York. A local museum and paranormal group are inviting the world to join them on their next adventure. The Bundy Museum of, of History and Art is pattern is partnering with Empirical Paranormal to participate in the worldwide ghost hunt. The event features live streams of haunted places all over the world for free. Director of Development for the Bundy, Jaina Rudler, says that they partnered with Empirical multiple times and they always seem to pick something up. Rudler says that Bundy regularly experiences paranormal events, the most common being heavy footsteps upstairs. She says the museum has always welcomed, welcomed investigators with open arms. I've been working here for eight years and in that time I've experienced a few things here in the house that I couldn't personally explain and it kind of wigged me out a little bit. So it makes me feel, for one thing, somewhat reassured, because empirical paranormal assures us there's nothing insidious going on here, says Rudler. Those interested in watching just the Bundy part of the hunt can visit the Empirical Paranormal Facebook page tomorrow from 7 to 11 p.m. for a live stream. And that's in the past, folks, so don't go looking for that. If you're interested in watching a variety of investigators from all over the world, you can visit nationalghosthuntingday.com. And if you still haven't got your fill of the paranormal, the Bundy also offers d detailed virtual ghost tours on the third Friday of every month. Now, I do apologize, folks, because when I saw the Bundy Museum, I thought it was a Ted Bundy Museum had something to do with him. And I thought, well, maybe they're saying the ghost of Ted Bundy is kind of wandering around there. But nonetheless, folks, if it's something that you're interested in, <clears throat> there are all kinds of paranormal channels all over youtube and all over the internet so there's no lack of that kind of stuff out there if you want to find it anyway but yeah you know anyway that's uh that's the news of the damned i hope that you've enjoyed it and again folks as i say there's still time if you'd like to get your personal stories or you know some kind of feedback on the program for the halloween shows you know drop me a note just send an email to the paranormalsun.com and also with tonight's show and with all of these shows folks I shouldn't have to tell anyone, but, you know, as with anything on the Internet, take it with a grain of salt. These aren't my stories, you know, and uh, these aren't my myths and legends. I don't know the answers to it, as I always say. So, you know, there's just just bear that in mind, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Make your own judgments on it. And hopefully you enjoy hearing the tale of one of Louisiana's most iconic monsters of myth, the Rougarou.
creepy swamp tales surrounding one Cajun creature have spooked some families living along the bayous for generations. Legend says the Rougarou prowls Louisiana swamps to hunt down Catholics who don't observe Lent and children who refuse to behave. The stories of the creature known as the Rougarou are as diverse as the spelling of its name, though they all are connected to French cultures through a common derived belief in the Lougarou. Lou is French for wolf, and Garou from Frankish, Garolf, cognate with English werewolves, is a man who transforms into an animal. In the swamps throughout the greater New Orleans area and Acadiana is where the beast has come to live. He might even be neighbors with the Honey Island Swamp Monster, which is Louisiana's Bigfoot of the Swamp. Anyone in Louisiana will immediately recognize the name Rougarou. Because it's such an old legend, the beast has a variety of different spellings and pronunciations of its name. Indeed, the Rougarou does share a lot of characteristics with the classic werewolf, although there are some major differences. The Rougarou most commonly takes the form of a massive hairy person, seven to eight feet tall, with the face of a dog or wolf, and blood-red eyes. These legends describe the creature as being over ten feet tall, with dark matted fur, blazing red eyes, and long sharp fangs that are usually bared. The creature is also sometimes described as a shadow that haunts anyone out late at night, a ravenous beast, a ghost, or a jealous lover that has been transformed into one. The biggest difference between this creature and a werewolf, however, is its ability to take on multiple forms, although whether or not it has the ability to shapeshift at will depends on who you ask. What changes someone into a Rougarou, or if it even had a form of a human at one point, varies wildly. Some believe that it was summoned from hell by witches, some believe that it has always marauded through the wilderness, and some believe that witches created the Rougarou themselves by casting curses upon mortal men. These tales are the younger ones created by the settlers when they first arrived in the area. Older myths surrounding the Rougarou have it linked to divine punishment for disobedient Catholics who break Lent. Many say that the individuals became Rougarous through contact, much like the stories of the werewolf. The infections transferred through the bites or making direct eye contact with the blood-red eyes. However, anyone who survives an encounter with one is said to be able to beat the curse by remaining silent about it for 101 days and then they release from the affliction. A witch can cast a spell upon someone to transform them as well, and this is heavily woven into the local voodoo traditions. Some people in historical legends do this voluntarily to gain the immense power that comes with the curse of the Rougarou. Forms that the Rougarou can take are startlingly numerous, and there is no real way to tell if the creature you encounter is a Rougarou unless it transforms before your very eyes. People who have encountered it have stated that they felt that it was unnatural in some way, but that the creature's appearance was completely normal, provided it took one or more of the mundane forms like a pig or a dog. The beast is most often depicted as wolfman, but has also been said to take the form of a big hairy ape, something resembling Bigfoot, but much more aggressive. Also, it's taken the forms of ragged men, shaggy dogs, flesh-eating swine, leopards, bears, and all manner of predatory animals spotted throughout the area have also been labeled as, as Rougarous. There have even been people linking the werewolf creature with the skunk ape, although the stories surrounding that monster in particular are too close to Bigfoot to realistically be added to the list of Rougarou forms. No Louisianan would outright admit believing in the creature. Like most cryptids or myths, it is part of their culture, but mostly regarded as a fairy tale within the public eye. The stories were used 
even when the very first settlers were establishing towns as cautionary tales to spook children into behaving, much like the werewolf in, in the tales in Europe. Don't go out into the woods or you'll get snapped up by a Rougarou, or don't stay out after dark, you might run into a Rougarou. The stories are still retold today, although the legend has mutated and become more and more fantastical, adding abilities and forms with each generation. With the stories being such a big part of the culture in southern Louisiana, it is no wonder that when faced with strange and unusual events, that the locals would immediately leap to the conclusion that the Rougarou was roaming about. This is not to say that the Rougarou does not exist, but it is a very big stretch to believe that any one creature could do so many things and take on so many different forms. Rougarou is the creature's name in the Native American tongue as well, but it's spelt differently. Having been introduced to the native peoples of Louisiana through interactions between hunters and traders. While the word is very similar to Rougarou, how the Native Americans saw the beast was rather different and used only to refer to a creature similar to Bigfoot. Like Bigfoot, when the natives spoke of the Rougarou, they seemed to consider it to be closely bound to the land and nature, not to supernatural spells and witches. Unfortunately, the term and stories eventually melded with the Wendigo, a horrid spirit said to be created whenever a man consumes the flesh of another man. This is really not surprising given that some stories of the Rougarou also have to do with flesh eating. And for those of you folks who have been longtime listeners to the show, you'll know I did an episode all about the Wendigo. It's one of the most terrifying creatures from Native American myth. And if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that episode. It's uh, definitely a Halloween type tale, and it'll definitely put some chills right up and down your spine. How a person transforms into the Rougarou doesn't seem to be entirely clear, nor is it clear if the Rougarou only prowls during a full moon, like a werewolf. The most popular legend surrounding the Rougarou serves to warn Catholics who backslide on observing Lent, which starts the day after Mardi Gras, by the way, a time of fasting and abstaining in Catholicism and other Christian religions. This lines up with the predominantly Catholic religion of the area. One of the ways that you could become a Rougarou is if you did not observe Lent for seven years in a row. Another version of the legend was used to make kids behave, so almost like an Acadiana version of Krampus or the Big Boogeyman. There are apparently other ways to morph into a Rougarou. Another way is if you were cursed by someone, and you could be cursed to become the Rougarou. To get rid of that curse, you had to get something done, something else to cut you, and draw blood. When that person cuts you, the curse would transfer into them, releasing you of the curse, but then turning them into the creature. So how can you protect yourself from the Rougarou, folks? Because this sounds like a pretty horrific beast. Some ways people would protect themselves from the Rougarou are common with other supernatural creatures, and some are unique to the bayou. So you can place 13 pennies or rocks on your doorstep or windowsill, and that's any small object. So it can be pennies, it can be rocks, it can be beans. I've heard many other tales. And uh, it says this was one tradition to protect your home from the Rougarou. When the Rougarou tries to break into a home, the creature will become perplexed and keep trying to count the items. Since the creature doesn't know the number 13, the pennies keep the monster at bay continuously counting until it has to retreat back into the swamps at sunrise. Now, folks, my friends over at the Quite Unusual Pod were having a good laugh about this, and they were saying that they wanted to start a GoFundMe page or a a charity to uh, get Rougarou's calculator so they could uh, count these items. But this is something that pops up again and again in myths and legends around the world. And uh, almost all of these myths originally come from Europe, folks, so they do have a bit of a commonality to them. 
Some say a screen door will also stop a Rougarou because it will have to stop and try to count all the holes. Sprinkle raw rice by your door is another way, and the Rougarou has to stop and count every grain. Apparently, the Rougarou is not good at math because he can only count to 12. Another tradition is putting a colander on your doorstep to achieve the same method. The monster will keep trying to count the holes. Other Louisiana monsters can be stopped in the same way. The Koshimar, a witch who jumps on people's backs while they are sleeping, and may ride them around the room or even down the stairs, is often said to be obsessed with counting things. Another way is you can roll up a leaf from the swamps and keep it in your wallet. Now it's a certain specific plant, folks. Or if you're creative, paint a hexagon shape on the middle of your floor. Stand in the center of it and say prayers to protect you. However, if you do not believe in the Rougarou stories, and you do nothing, you may be heading for a bout or two with the Rougarou. While bullets, even silver ones, are useless, Rougarou can easily be scared away by frogs. Now, folks, again, for those of you who heard the Wendigo story, one of the stories in there that I read was talking about uh, frogs in this pond and that the old story was that the frogs kept the Wendigo away. And when this husband got tired of the frogs, he went and he killed all the frogs in this area and then the Wendigo showed up. So, again, I do find that quite interesting that there's a commonality with this. At the Rougarou Festival each year in Homa, Alabama, storytellers keep the oral tradition alive by passing the folklore to the next generation. The unique festival celebrates the folklore of the Louisiana Bayou. It's important for the next generation of kids living on the bayou to understand. And this won the Festival of the Year in Louisiana this year, folks, in 2020. Whether you believe in transformations into the Rougarou or not, most Cajuns aren't going to take any chances. Some say that they only arrive during the full moon, like I've said, like a werewolf, while others claim that the horrifying creature roams the land year-round. The terrifying creature has superhuman strength and speed. However, they aren't unstoppable. A Rougarou's only real weakness is fire, which can destroy them, as well as decapitation. With the first drop of blood drawn and the dying blow, the beast will then turn back into a man and reveal to its attacker his true name. This legend is said to usually happen within the smallest of towns in Louisiana. Because of this, the Rougarou is often already known by its killer. Before the dying man takes his last breath of life, he will warn his savior that he cannot mention a word of the incident to anyone for one full year, or he too will suffer the same fate and become the Rougarou. I've also heard one year and one day, folks, so if... Uh, a year goes by, I'd wait another day just to be safe. Many people also say the Rougarou is a swamp monster made of reeds and moss, that it can be nothing but grass and then pop up out of nowhere. Now that makes a bit of sense, folks, if you're making up these types of tales to keep your kids away from things like alligators and water moccasins. So I can fully understand why you wouldn't want kids going poking in these things that could be alligator nests or uh, you know there could be snakes swimming in them or any any kind of things. I've never been into the bayou, folks, but uh, there's lots of things out there that'll kill you. There's also a legend called uh, about the Lugaru Balls. Now, it's not, uh, it's not what you're thinking, folks, so keep your mind clean. And it refers to a gathering of Rougarou that meet in a clearing in the swamp and dance on their high legs before going out to hunt prey. So they turn up as wolves and they're dancing on their back legs. This definitely gives a new meaning to the call of the wild. Now, Louisiana Lugaru have some especially interesting habits. They are said to ride enormous bats, for one thing, and they gather along Bayou Gula 
and in true Louisiana style, have a rowdy werewolf bowl. According to the book Gumbo Yaya, a collection of Louisiana folk tales, Lugaroos have bats as big as airplanes to carry them where they want to go. They make these bats drop them down the chimney, and they stand by their be- by your bed and say, I've got you now. Then they bite you and suck your blood, and that makes you a Lugaroo. And soon you will find out yourself that dancing at their balls at the Bayou Gula and carrying on just as they do, you're a lost soul. Of course it could be worse. You may be a werewolf, but you still get to go to parties. Now a little bit about the Rougarou in popular culture, folks. There are Rougarou beers, hot sauces, rum, and Rougarou restaurants. J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter universe includes wands that contain Rougarou hair as their magical core. It's been included as a monster in some video games and in many books. The Rougarou is incorporated into the story of an episode of the television show NCIS New Orleans. In that episode, a victim is killed while investigating a possible sighting of the Rougarou, which occurs in the 20th episode of the sixth season. The New Orleans Pelicans, when they first moved to Louisiana, considered the name Rougarous, and they filed for several new name trademarks. There are several players at LSU over the years, and especially big ones, that get the Rougarou nickname. In 1984, Rodriguez, already locally known for his post-impressionistic Cajun landscapes, was commissioned to create paintings for the book Bayou, a collection of disturbing and macabre Louisiana legends. Included in the collection was the Cajun story of the Lugaroo, a werewolf-like creature with mysterious origins. Rodriguez's deceptively spooky Lugaroo painting captured people's attention, but none more so than his own. He continued to paint his blue dog, which slowly evolved over time. Eventually, the moody South Louisiana landscapes were dropped, as Rodriguez realized the blue dog was not just a symbolic Lugaroo, but its own entity. The dog's red pupils were changed to black to tone down the creepy factor. The colors got more vibrant, and the general feel of the artwork became more lighthearted. The key to Rodriguez's success was his originality. His painting of the Lugaroo rejected all visual similarities to the commonly accepted look of the swamp-dwelling werewolf and created an image that was entirely his own. In 2013, Rodriguez and his blue dog passed away, but his artwork and influence on other artists lives on. Now, folks, I didn't know about this until I looked. I was looking at things for the show, researching about the Rougarou. And when I saw this blue dog, I said, oh, yeah, I've seen that. So this is a very well-known, you know, piece of art uh, that he's drawn many times in, in different uh, settings. So if you ever see the blue dog, just remember, folks, that that originally came from a Rougarou. Now, I'm going to get into some Rougarou tales, folks. And like the Wendigo, I hope you really enjoy these. But some of these are interesting. And some of them are just downright creepy. And they really make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. So make sure that you're settled in and you're ready to hear these. One account tells of a boy who encountered the beast while on his way home from a night out with friends. As the boy was walking along, a large white dog was following behind him, nipping at his heels and antagonizing the boy to attack. Finally, out of annoyance and slight anger, the boy took out his knife and slashed the dog open. At that point, the beast then turned back into a man. In this case, the Rougarou told the boy how he had sold his soul to the devil to gain prosperity, but was tricked by Satan and changed into the beast instead. As the curse seemed to demand, he then warned the boy of the penalty of mentioning the events that had taken place, but the boy just couldn't resist. After repeating the story to several friends, the boy started to disappear from his room at night. 
and none of his friends or family could find him anywhere until the following morning, at which point he would appear back in his room with no explanation of where he had been. This went on for about a year, until one morning his body was found lying in the street. The police claimed it was most likely suicide, but friends and family of the boy knew that there would soon be a new Rougarou roaming the streets. Anyone who has ever lived in a small town knows that no story can be kept secret for long, not even the tale of the Rougarou. In Swapping Stories, Folk Tales from Louisiana, Lulin Pitree recounts a story his father told him of a Lugaroo who once prowled the bayous at night, calling fishermen's oysters and eating half of them. Other Rougarou tales feature a man who is constantly followed by a Rougarou and becomes so obsessed with the creature that when he finally kills it, usually by stabbing it with a wooden stick, he spends the rest of his life mourning its absence. There's also the common motif of the wanderer who encounters the Rougarou at night, draws its blood, and is thus caught out under the spell of the Rougarou for a year. In these versions, the Rougarou is often someone the victim knows. One woman recalled a story about her grandfather. Her grandfather told her about the beast when she was young. He said he was on his way home one evening when a wild dog jumped him. Understandably startled and upset, the young man pulled out a pocket knife and slashed it in self-defense. He was astonished when the dog vanished, replaced by a homeless-looking man who fled the scene. The woman's grandfather never saw him again, but was convinced that he had come in contact with the Rougarou. I saw one when I was a young girl in central Illinois, another lady says. About five in the morning, it came inside my grandfather's house and stood in the hallway. Its eyes reflected white, and it was about seven feet tall. As soon as I laid eyes on it, I ran to wake up my grandpa, and when he came to investigate the matter, the Rougarou was gone, but the door to the house was wide open. My great-grandfather told a story of being chased by a Rougarou while driving his horse and wagon on Bayou Blue Road, just outside of Huma. Huma, again, folks, is where the Rougarou Festival is held every year. He said it was a big hairy beast, and it scared him badly. It definitely scared us, his descendants, and we used to speculate on who it could have been that was under the Rougarou curse. I believe most of us have told our children and grandchildren the same story as we passed on our family's history. A tale that appeared in a 1971 Louisiana Folklore Society publication, the Rougarou appears as a calf struck by a motorist on the highway, and when the driver got out of his vehicle, the calf had vanished, and an uninjured man, apparently a Rougarou, was walking away from the spot where the creature was hit. One account of a lady from Lockport, Louisiana, taken from Werewolves on Bayou Lafourche, written by Jean Sarazin, Laura Krauss, and Donald Krinsman, tells of a somewhat personal experience with the Rougarou. There were ten children in our family, and all of them were up crying that night. I didn't get up for some reason, but a year or so later, one of the brothers killed himself. This boy was always veying uh, villier or to stay up at night, so this boy was always staying up late at night or hanging around with other boys out at night. One night he was walking home. He was always the last to leave when he noticed a little white dog following him, snapping at his heels. He took out his pocket knife and cut the dog on its right foot. A Lugaru is a man who sells his soul to the devil and assumes the body of an animal. He can't be released until he is cut. The boy wasn't supposed to tell what happened for a year and a day after he had seen the white dog turn into a man, but after it happened, he ran home and told his family. The next day, a prominent physician appeared in town with his right arm cut and in a sling. The dog resumes his form, human form in the day. I remember when the physician shot himself here in Lockport. 
A year later, the boy killed himself and left a letter that the family turned over to the sheriff. Even today, the sheriff refuses to let anyone see the letter. So again, folks, very similar to one of the tales before that I've read. Another story is a woman is that a woman had asked her husband to go and get some food for dinner. Some time went by and he hadn't returned, so she went out looking for him. As she walked along the road towards town, she said she heard what sounded like animal noises. In a flash, a werewolf-like animal was said to have attacked her. She managed to kick it in the face, leaving a deep scratch, and ran off. But the animal reportedly started to chase her on its hind legs, then on all fours. Luckily, a car came along the road, and the animal is said to have disappeared. The driver of the car was her neighbor, who drove her home. On arriving back at her house, it was claimed she saw her husband, and he had a deep scratch on his face. No news uh, in that story, folks, if she divorced the Rougarou after, but um, it is quite interesting. Now, here's an older one for you folks. A 19th century tale, so that's from the 1800s, of the Rougarou involved a young newlywed who was waiting for her husband late on a moonlit night near the swamp. Although her husband had warned his bride not to go out after dark, she became impatient for his return and ignored his warning. As the girl stood there in the chill of the night air, she saw a huge dark form with red glowing eyes emerge from the woods. She was stricken with terror when before her in the clearing stood a huge wolf man. Shocked by the sight of the Rougarou, she failed to avert her eyes from the creature's fiendish gaze before it retreated into the woods. Remembering the tales of the Rougarou, she locked herself in the woodshed each night of the full moon and told no one of her experience. Since her husband frequently worked at night, he didn't know that she locked herself up on each full moon. Finally, the allotted time of a year and a day passed. Her husband quite unexpectedly asked her if she had ever waited for him at night by the edge of the woods. The young wife lied and said that she hadn't. Her husband looked straight into her eyes and replied that he knew that she had because he was the Rougarou she encountered a year and a day ago. He went on to tell her that since she had kept her silence about the experience for the requisite year and a day, the curse was broken for both of them. And again, folks, that's one that you will hear of over and over in Rougarou tales. Now, this is one from Reddit. This is a long one, but this is quite a good one. And again, folks, I can't tell you which of these are, you know, purported encounters and which ones are fiction. It can be difficult at times. So again, take it with a grain of salt and make up your own mind. So it says, one lazy afternoon after school, the sun was starting to drop, and I was laying back in my pierogi, a small flat-bottomed boat. I was staring at the clouds, listening to the chatter of the frogs. There's those frogs again. Daydreaming while letting the slow bayou current push me downstream towards home. All of a sudden, I jumped up, startled out of my daze by a loud splash. I quickly looked at the water around the pierogi, trying to find the telltale ripples that would indicate a gator was close by. Gators often splash around our boats, but they're usually harmless. If we leave them be, they leave us be. Well, for the most part, that is. But this time, I saw nothing but flat water. There didn't appear to be any gators nearby. Lots of creatures called the swamp home, and I started to relax again, deciding it was probably just a snake dropping from a tree into the water in search of food. But then I heard a fast series of splashes and turned around to find myself face to face with what could only be a Rougarou. The water, chest high on me, came up to its hips, just below its waist. Its arms were abnormally long, misshapen and hairy. But its face is what caused me to open my mouth to scream. Large, soulful black eyes, tucked under hairy ears, and over a flat snout with two large yellowed canine teeth, 
hanging crooked out of its mouth. The Rougarou's hair was colored with browns and reds of the swamp, from the muddy brown color of the bayou water to the dark reds of the cypress tree roots. Before the scream could leave my throat, the Rougarou clamped its giant hand over my mouth, and no sound escaped. It then pushed me to the floor of my pierogi and pinned me down with its foot. I was terrified, certain that I was going to be snatched for its dinner, just as in the tales I'd heard all my life. I'm not going to lie, I was scared out of my mind. I quickly pissed myself and began to shake and cry. I really wish I could say I fought a valiant fight that day, but that's not how it went down. I was unable to move, frozen with fear, and couldn't even begin to fight back. And folks, I'll tell you what, I think most of us would be in that situation. As I lay there pinned down, I heard the familiar sound of my backpack zipper being unzipped. Then I felt a shifting weight as I heard the Rougarou inhale deeply, one giant loud sniff. Most of my backpack's contents were then strewn around the inside of the pierogi, landing everywhere. My calculus textbook banged me squarely on the forehead, drawing blood. I heard a crinkling sound as the Rougarou suddenly jumped up and leapt into the water with amazing speed and agility. Once it got to the shore, it took off running into the distance, was quickly shrouded by the thick swamp-colored vegetation, and was gone. I spent who knows how long just attempting to compose myself. I then rinsed my pants out in the bayou water, trying to wash away both the smell of urine and the shame I felt at my cowardly reaction. I had finally stopped shaking and started repacking my backpack when I had a realization. There was only one item missing. The Rougarou had taken only one thing from my bag, my favorite study snack, the snack I was known for always having in my book bag. And no, folks, it wasn't a Slim Jim. My extra-large, sharing-sized bag of M&Ms. It was gone. I eventually calmed down and made it home after the sun had set. I let my dad holler at me for being late, and no one noticed the cut on my forehead. After that day, I gave up floating the bayou alone and never saw the Rougarou again. I went on to graduate high school and moved away for college, as I had planned. Getting out of the bayou has been everything I'd hoped for and more. I go back to visit family once a year, usually around the holidays. When I go home, I still hear the old Rougarou tales being told, but now told to a new generation of Cajun kids. My family has never left the bayou to come visit me, but it's okay. I've come to understand some of the pull of the, that the swamp has on them. Aside from getting this story off my chest here, I've never shared what happened that day with, with a single person, not one. I haven't added my Rougarou encounter to the infamous Bayou Tech Rougarou lore, nor do I plan to. Some stories are best left untold, you know? That, and I never eat M&Ms anymore. I haven't eaten a single M&M since that day I shared my bag with the Rougarou. Well, folks, either way, whether that's a true tale, what an encounter, or if he made it up, that's, that's a good story, I think. So that's from Reddit, and again, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Now, the following is from Phantoms and Monsters. Now, for those of you who don't know what Phantoms and Monsters is, it's a really good website run by Len Strickler, or sorry, Lon Strickler. And he does an excellent job of gathering stories of cryptids from all over the U.S. and other parts, and he has them on his website. And uh, the, the boys over at um, Expanded Perspectives used to talk about a lot about Lon Strickler, and that was my first real introduction to him. And when the Mothman sightings were going in and in Chicago, some of the first encounters, you know, the witnesses were going straight to Lon Strickler. So if you're into cryptids, it's a website you should check out. So this story is called Upright Canine, Possibly a Rougarou, Encountered in Beauregard Parish, Louisiana. This past weekend, I received a telephone call from PB. So this is written by Lon Strickler, by the way, folks. So it's from his perspective. 
who is an owner of 70 acres of thick West Central Louisiana woodland in Beauregard Parish near DeRider, adjacent to the Fork to the Fork Polk Military Base. Okay, so Fort Polk Military Base in Vernon Parish. There's just a typo there. About four years ago, PB and his five-year-old daughter were walking along their long dirt driveway that leads to their home. When they reached the paved section of the driveway, PB noticed a dead 90-pound male bobcat laying along the edge. There were no apparent wounds or blood, but the fresh carcass looked like it had been battered and crushed. This area has abundant wildlife and predators that include bobcat, black bear, and at least one very large female panther that has been seen on occasion by PB. The sights of this dead bobcat was concerning, and concerning since there was no indication that any predator had fed on the carcass. And yeah, folks, for those of you from the country, you come across any body that hasn't been fed on, and, you know, especially if it's bloated or something, that, that is a bit concerning. As PB and his daughter stood there looking at the bobcat carcass, he noticed some movement in the thick, dark woods not far from the driveway. There's a game trail that cuts through the woods and continues over the dirt driveway into the opposite woods. There's also a pond nearby. As they moved closer, PB soon observed a wolf-like head rise above the thick brush. The head was very large with grayish-black fur. PB pulled out his phone and quickly snapped a photo of the beast. As he did, a deep growling sound emanated from the unknown creature as it stood up. PB immediately saw that this canine was at least seven foot in height and covered a sparse, covered in sparse blackish fur. It had freakishly broad human-like shoulders and a wide chest, muscular arms and legs, as well as a tapered torso. The eyes seemed to shine, a weird greenish hue. PB and his daughter backed off as this beast took a long stride forward. It stopped, leered at PB with its green eyes, and growled deeply. PB's daughter ran away, screaming for her father, which seemed to startle the upright canine. It quickly turned and fled into the woods. PB attempted to take another photo as the beast moved off into the dark woods, but there was no distinguishable form on the image. They quickly both ran for home. Since that encounter, PB has attempted to find a reporting agency. When he finally found my contact information, he sent me the image and asked what I thought that it may be. I noticed the canine-like head and pointed ears, but was unsure since the image was difficult to discern. I asked PB what his thought was. His immediate response was werewolf. I later asked PB if he had heard of any similar sightings in the area. He responded that he hadn't, but he was aware of Rougarou accounts much further south from his location. The image of the upright canine head is very distorted because of the pixelation of a typical camera phone when attempting to zoom in. The best result that we have been able to manage without manipulation of the photo is posted below. So there is a photo on the website there, folks, and again, I'll have a link for it. It was forwarded by a reader. I've also included the original photo. There are also other areas, other images of the area that were taken later. PB believes that the bobcat may have been attacked, may have attacked the upright canine, or vice versa. It seems that the bobcat was beat upon or slammed onto the ground by this beast. The witness is a hunter and trapper who is quite familiar with the wildlife in this part of Louisiana. PB is attempting to gather further evidence and will provide it to me if available lawn now folks as you can imagine i mean i'm sure you've all seen those movies uh you know where you'll have uh well i don't know if you've all seen them but you've got the old movies you know and uh, it might be a neanderthal fighting against a panther or something and you can imagine even if a cat jumped on you and started scratching you your first reaction would be to slam that cat down 
And so, you know, being an upright creature, if that's what this was, if this was a Rougarou or whatever, you know, as he said, it looked like this bobcat had been slammed onto the ground and, and, you know, killed. So that makes sense to me. I mean, that's our first reaction, right? If anything would jump on us, whether it's a spider or whatever, we, we generally will try and throw it off of us. A Cajun guide. Now, this is another one here, folks. So there's a Cajun guide named Gaston from Huma, Louisiana. He's a lifelong fisherman and trapper on the bayou. He says the strangest thing he ever experienced in the bayou were strange vocalizations he heard on two different occasions. Gaston went on to describe how white-tailed deer have adapted to walk in the swamps without making a sound. They slowly place their foot into the water and then splay their hooves in the mud for traction. So they spread out their hooves so that it takes weight off of the points so they don't sink in so much and they don't make noise when they're pulling their hooves out. Learning to mimic this silent form of walking, Gaston snuck up on some deer some years ago and was interrupted by a horrible howling sound that sent the deer fleeing. Having never heard anything like it, Gaston was quite frightened and has only heard a similar sound on one other occasion while out in the bayou at night. He said that he has been quite cautious about going in the bayou at night after hearing these sounds. Now, when you grow up in an area like that and you basically know all of the creatures, folks, I mean, like where I'm from, I know what I knew what was out there. You know, we had mountain lions and bears and and wolves and coyotes and that. But if you hear something that you've never heard before and you're a, an adult and you've lived in that area for your whole life, yeah, I'd probably start getting some uh, some trepidation about going out at night alone myself. You know, the bayou is not a place that you want to go out at, by yourself, especially, you know, alone after dark. Uh, there's snakes and gators and everything else. If you grow up there, it's one thing. But again, as I say, you know, even this guy, lifelong uh, resident of the area, a hunter, a trapper, everything else, and he's scared to go out there at night by himself. And here's one last one for you folks. And this is a told from the perspective of a witness. So I'll just read this for you quickly. And it says, this past spring, I had an encounter. God's honest truth, I did see something very distinctly. And I had four people with me on a boat while we were out there. So this was a guy who was a swamp guide. Uh, I don't know if you've necessarily seen it in the bayou, but a lot of people would have seen, you know, on different shows, them taking people out in the Everglades. So kind of think of that, you know, he's out there doing a bit of a boat tour with people. So back to the story. I had passed a deer on a road that was hit by a car. I, I bring customers to see alligators and stuff. So I like to feed my alligators so they stick around, you know, keep them on the payroll. So he's saying, you know, if he finds any roadkill, he'll kind of take it as free meat to feed to the alligators, kind of keep them in the area, you know. Think of those fish that you'll see at different places or ducks in a park where somebody goes and feeds them bread. Same, same idea. So when he goes to show people alligators, he knows they'll be there. I put the deer in the back of a dead-end canal at about noon, knowing I had a trip at about three. So I was hoping to come back and see the alligators, you know. So he's saying he put this body of the deer in the back of this canal. And then at about three hours before he was taking these customers out. So he figured he'd get there and he'd see the alligators eating this deer carcass. And it'd be really good for them. But when we got closer, I realized that it was being drug up onto the land. As we got close, you could see that whatever it was, it was standing pretty tall in the marsh. It was at least five to six foot tall in the marsh. If you got something that's three foot tall in the marsh, it sinks a good foot or two into the marsh. So it was tall. So what he's saying is, if it was standing in the marsh, 
and it was five to six feet tall, it was probably between seven and eight feet tall or maybe taller. And when we got closer to this thing, you could see that it had dark maroon hair. It was a two-footed being, whatever it was, and it was dragging the deer by its back legs and moving the vegetation out of the way with its other hand. So he's saying that whatever this creature was, it was walking on two legs and it was pulling the carcass of the deer behind it with one arm and using its other arm to sweep the vegetation out of the way in front of it. Kind of like you would push, you know, tree branches and things out of the way as you're walking through a forest. I was told that after the faux filet, which is the will of the wisp, and folks, if you don't know what a will of the wisp is, if you've seen Lord of the Rings movies, there's that scene where they're in that dead swamp and there's those lights floating on top of the water. That's kind of what a, a will of the wisp looks like. So it says, I was told that after the faux filet, the Lugaroo shows up. So he's saying that once you've seen uh, one of these faux filets or will of the wisps in the swamp, you should expect to see a Rougarou. Now, my grandfather taught me it was a shape changer. So when you hear, hear the noise, whether it be a howl, a shuffle in the grass, you turn around and you look for it. Now, the first thing you think of when you turn around is what it turns out to be. Now, I don't believe in it, but if I ever hear anything and I don't, I don't know what it is. I always turn around looking for a bunny rabbit, you know, because a bunny rabbit can't mess with you. So the story his grandfather told him is whatever you picture in your mind's eye is what the form that the Rougarou will take, which is quite fascinating. Growing up, I never paid no mind to the stories, but it was pretty scary seeing it because I've been in that environment my entire life. We hunt in the same area. We have two camps. One's about a quarter mile away from the other one in the opposite direction. They set that camp up from the early 1800s to trap out of. Generation after generation of our family has always been out at that same camp. And since I was a child, we could never keep food in those two camps. The door would be all right. It would always be a window and the food would be taken out of it. Never any equipment, no guns, generators or gas. Everything would be there, but the food would be taken out of it. So he's saying that in these camps, in these buildings, the door would be fine. You know, whatever it was, it wasn't trying to go through the door, it'd go through a window. And it wouldn't take any of the guns or any of the generators or anything. It only went after food. Now, what makes that more believable is that I waited about two weeks or so to say something to my uncle who owns the property. I asked him if he, uh, well, had he ever did, if he'd ever seen anything in the area. And he laughed and said, well, what you laughing at? And he said, well, I don't ever recall seeing it, but my daddy did. I asked him, my uncle, about that, and he laughed again, and he asked me, why? You seen it? Like he knew something was back there. I asked him, why? You seen it yourself? And he said, no, but when I was little, my daddy used to feed them. So, look, folks, uh, I find that quite interesting because, again, like any animal, if you put food out for something, it will probably keep coming back to that area, wherever it is, and whether it's a, uh, whether it's a carnivore or a herbivore, if you feed them, they'll keep coming back. You know, I've got ducks that turn up in our yard every spring to come and get free bread, and they've been doing it for about four or five years now. Now, folks, let's get into some of the theories and, you know, purported explanations of sightings of the Rougarou in the swampland around Louisiana. Now, the first thing I want you to bear in mind, folks, is that, as I say, the Lugarou, you know, came from France over to America. So that was the version of the French werewolf. Now, for those of you that remember your history lessons in the U.S., the French settled in a lot of areas of North America and Canada. Now, in the 1750s, 
there were a lot of settlers in that area that had settled in areas of Newfoundland and that that called those areas Acadia. And they didn't want to swear allegiance to the British crown after the French lost the, I think it was the Seven Years' War. So they moved from Canada down to the Louisiana Bayou, which at that time was still French property, uh, you know, until it was bought by the U.S. in, in the um, Louisiana Purchase. So that's where a lot of these, you know, French tie-ins come from. And to this day, there are lots of Lugaroo sightings in Canada, you know, and, and claims in areas like Quebec and that. And it continues to be a part of the folklore there as well. So I just wanted to give you that brief history. So when you hear things like Acadian and Acadiana and Cajuns, that's where they came from. These settlers, most of them came from France to Canada and then moved from Canada to Louisiana back in the 1700s. So some people have tried to explain away contemporary sightings of the Rougarou or even its origins and history as sightings of Bigfoot-like creatures in the swamps. But ultimately, it's hard to say with such deeply rooted folkloric traditions. Far and away, the most frequent mention of Lugaroo and Rougarous take place in fictional books, movies, and TV shows. However, there are some strong signs that the stories of these imaginary creatures are moving from the realm of popular folklore into that of cryptozoology. An episode of, of the TV show Monsters and Mysteries in America has been devoted to the Rougarou, and the History Channel has run a TV series titled Cryptid, the Swamp Beast. In the History Channel series The Swamp Beast, in the title refers to exclusively to creatures that have been sighted in South Louisiana. And then there is the work of cryptozoological organizations. The Gulf Coast Bigfoot Research Organization has been around since 1997. A statement from the group's charter reads, There is no skepticism amongst any members of our group as far as the existence of these animals is concerned. The charter goes on to say that each member is willing to take a polygraph test. Another message from the site reads, One thing's for sure. If our name is brought up on the evening news, you need to pay attention because we just solved the mystery. A more recent player on the scene is the Louisiana Bigfoot Organization, or LABO, which has been doing its work since 2012. One of the group's mottos is, which friend will save you from the Rougarou? Parents would commonly tell their children in the past, as I say, you better behave or the Rougarou is going to get you. So is it just an old wives tale? told to keep children in line folks again is this the is this the cajun version of the boogeyman or of krampus renditions of the spooky legend most likely spread from french and french canadian settlers so like i say you know the ones who came from canada especially who eventually made their way into cajun louisiana over generations the stories may have morphed but remain versions of cautionary tales in the bayou the stories are centered around a man in the shape of a dog or half man, half dog. There's even one theory that it is a genetic defect that some people have, and the transformation is triggered by bouts of extreme anger, grief, or sadness. Although one does not fully become a Rougarou unless they have consumed a mouthful of human flesh. So again, there is a theory out there that this is a genetic disease. Now, the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans has an exhibit on the Rougarou and features a life-size mannequin of what the Rougarou might look like. The Rougarou Fest, as I've talked about before, is a festival that celebrates the folklore of the Louisiana bayous. It takes place on the last Saturday in October in Huma, Louisiana. 
Now, there's also an excellent Rougarou Habitat website that I found, and it's written very much in a factual manner as though you were talking about any kind of wild animal, like whether it was deer or moose or, you know, it was very interesting because they took the time to model Louisiana as a whole and specifically what areas are more likely to have Rougarou versus not. And they even did things like modeling how close they were to Catholic churches and things like that. It, it was really interesting. It's really well done, folks. Now, from their models, they reckon that the state could support about 195 Rougarou in the wild. And, you know, they were really pushing to preserve the habitat for the Rougarou. And I think this is awesome, you know. So, um, you know, whether it's just a, kind of an interesting side note or not, I'll have a link in the show notes. It's a really interesting website. Now, no matter what set of stories you find the most logical, there was an incident in 1996 that could be linked to the Rougarou. A woman by the name of Barbara Mullins stumbled across an interesting carcass by the road. She decided it was being the size of a St. Bernard, so she, she worked out that it was about the size of a St. Bernard dog, and she took it to be a dog when she first saw it, but something seemed a little off. It was enough to bring her to pull over and examine the dead thing more closely, so she saw it while she was driving. What she saw was definitely startling. Her second impression was that it must have been a baboon, though the tail and the backside of the animal did not match. Its tail was much thicker, bushier than any baboon's, and its rump was coated in a matted layer of fur. The face, although it, was, it more closely resembled a baboon's face, still had distinctly canine characteristics such as pointed fangs and a dog-like nose. The ears were rather short, however, and instead of paws, the thing had, seen, had what seemed to be hands, though the back feet were closely resembled, more closely resembled paws. Barbara snapped a few pictures and posted them online. The creature she took pictures of became known as the Deer Rider Roadkill. It was a good thing she did, she did take those pictures, as when the news got a hold of the story, so when... You know, the news channel got a hold of it. They published word that the creature she found was nothing more than a feral Pomeranian that had been struck down by a car. Now, look, folks, I fully understand that sometimes our memories play tricks. But the difference between a Pomeranian, which is one of the smallest domesticated dogs, and a St. Bernard, which is one of the largest, is pretty massive. You know, it's kind of like getting a bicycle and a car mixed up in size. It's pretty difficult to do. Yet in her account, Miss Mullins had put great stress on how big the creature was. Unfortunately, the photos she took hold no clues as to the size of the dead beast. Many were quick to point out that without something to scale it against the picture, it could have been could have very well been a Pomeranian. But Barbara Mullins stands by her claims that it definitely was not. So could this have really been the famed Rougarou? With so little evidence, it's hard to say one way or another. In many tales, if a Rougarou is struck by something, it changes form. It is very possible that, if the legends are true, it may have been hit by a car while in dog form and attempted to get away or unnerve its opponent by taking the form of an ape-man or half-human, half-dog. At this point, it is likely that the beast was already mortally wounded and died on the roadside, laying there for hours before someone eventually found it. Now, whatever you believe, folks, if the legends are true, Louisiana has not seen the last of the Rougarou. Like the werewolf, they could be ordinary people. Your banker, your doctor, your mother. There's no telling when the next Rougarou will once again take to the streets. So, folks, that is the tale of the Rougarou. What are we left with? You know, again, could it be a lot of misinterpreted sightings in that over the years? I'm sure that 
uh, a lot of these cases are. You know, oftentimes instances like this in the woods, especially if it's dark, you know, it, it can be difficult to make these things out. Now, there's another theory, and it makes sense to me in a way, is that, you know, people claim that the Rougarou exists because when you've got people who are hunters and woodsmen and they go out and get lost in the woods and get killed by gators or something, the community and the family don't want to admit that they could have been killed by something so mundane as a snake bite or a gator or, you know, wild dogs, something like this. So they invented the Rougarou to try and make these men seem like heroes, you know, for facing up to the Rougarou before they died. But nonetheless, you know, I do find it quite an interesting tale. I feel it really fits in well with Halloween, and I hope that you've enjoyed the tale of the Rougarou. So with that, folks, I will be back soon with the episode on the Highgate Vampires. I hope that you quite enjoy that as well. And again, that one's definitely got a hollow Halloween bend. I hope that you're enjoying your October. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell. And that quote is, A mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. I'll talk to you soon, folks.